just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello, and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Lord Tugendhat, Christopher Tugendhat, who's a, well, a former European commissioner, former conservative politician and journalist, and he's now the author of a book in which he looks back on, well, 64 years of Britain, a history of Britain through books. His book's called 1900 to 1964. Christopher, welcome. Thank um, you. To start with, can you just, in the most basic terms, sort of set out what, what this project is? Why did you choose to the dates you chose and how did you... No, conceive well, it. to take the dates first, my view is that basically the world changed in the early 1960s. You had the end of empire on the one hand, you had the rise of Commonwealth immigration on the other. Uh, you had the change in sexual mores, Philip Larkin's famous remarks about sex began in 1963 between the Lady Chatterley trial and Beatles' first LP, I've probably not got it right. You you had the change in sexual mores. You had the beginning of the affluent uh, society. You had the end of national service. And, you know, two million men, of whom I was one, uh, did national service. But when national service ended, you still had veterans from the Boer War, the First War, the Second War, the Korean War. You had... The majority of British men had all shared an experience, and that's something which will probably never be reproduced. So in all kinds of ways, the early 1960s marked a watershed in in modern history. So that's the answer to the question about those particular years. 1964 is, is arbitrary, but it is also the year in which 13 years of Conservative government came to an end and Harold Wilson became Prime Minister. So at the time, uh, when I was working on the FT, it did seem a very important change. But, so that's the explanation for the, for the dates. The project is this, that I've been collecting books for many, many years, and I, I have a lot of first editions of books which I think reflect and illuminate the British experience in the first two-thirds of the 20th century. I wanted to find a way to write about them. And what gave me the clue was Neil McGregor's book about the history of the world in 100 objects, and then he did Germany in 100 objects. He used objects. I used books. And conventional histories are written when we know how the story ended, when we know who proved to be right and who proved to be wrong uh, and who proved to be wise and who proved to be foolish. They are also, of course, influenced by hindsight and by the judgments of the time. In other words, they are about a period. The books I'm writing about were written within the period when people didn't know how things were going to turn out. And what I've tried to do is to capture the mentality and the feel of the period, and also to enable people to understand what it was like when the camera clicked. I mean, the camera clicks and captures a moment. The books which were written at the time 
capture a moment. And I think that by reading them in different combinations, by mixing and matching them, I've been able to bring to the surface a number of insights which, at any rate, to me, were not so apparent beforehand. Yes. Tell me a little about, before we start going into the books themselves, your own book collection. I mean, you say you've collected books that sort of reflect the British experience through history. Was that sort of how you started? Did you, I mean, was this a sort of guiding principle when you started collecting first? Well, well, I I started collecting first soon after 1970, and I I can remember the, the, the moment very well. And I've been collecting modern first editions ever since, and I have a various collections. I mean, some of particular authors, but then I moved, I mean, added to collecting particular authors to trying to make a collection which I thought would reflect the British experience over those years. And and by that, I mean books which either cast light on, on the period or books which exercised an influence. I'm also, of course, interested in literary quality, but it's the the casting light and exercising influence. And some of those are very important books, but some of them have, have long since uh, fallen into obscurity. Yes, I was going to say, that, I mean, how, how much was sort of literary quality a cut-off? Or did you go, this is a bad book, but it's, it's important? Yes, so there are, are some books which are not particularly good, but are important. And I'll give you an example, the autobiography of Margaret Bonfield. Now, we've heard a lot uh, over the last year about the suffragettes and the vote and that period of early feminism. But if you think about it, the people they bang on about, uh, Mrs Pankhurst, uh, Millicent Fawcett, middle-class women, women who did a tremendously important job for the emancipation of women. But Margaret Bonfield and women like her, trade unionists, were working on behalf of exploited women in retail trade, in factories, or all the other things women did, long before women got the vote. I mean, she showed, she and her her sisters, if I can put it that way, showed how it was possible to be active and effective in politics uh, before the vote was obtained. She went on to become the first uh, woman cabinet minister. Now, it's quite extraordinary that everybody's heard of Nancy Astor, the first woman to become an MP. But in all the celebrations last year, Margaret Bonfield was never, to my knowledge, mentioned. And I think that, that it's very interesting when you look at the feminist movement over the first part of the century. You have complete absence of attention paid to people like Bonfield and the trade unionists, all the emphasis is on the the middle class leaders. When you look at Virginia Woolf's books, very important, A Room of One's Own and Three Guineas, which was the first book really to deal with the question of equal pay. But as Virginia Woolf herself said, she was concerned with the plight of the daughters of educated men. She wasn't concerned with the plight of the women in domestic service, factories, retail trade. And then another book I take about the feminist movement is The Golden Notebooks, published at the end of the period. And there, too, all the concern is with the problems of middle-class 
women. And particularly Communist Party members. <laughs> well, and in fact, quite far to the left. But it's the problem of middle-class women and the problems of sexual emancipation. The idea of, of economic emancipation, the, the problems of women in, in making careers, in getting equal pay and so forth, completely ignored. And I think that one of the things which comes out from approaching history in the way that I've done is that one is able to focus on examples like that that somehow get lost in the in the overall picture. Yes, and I was very interested in the way you took the Golden Notebook to task in certain important respects. You know, I mean, another way I would take the Golden Notebooks to task, I mean, it's an important book. I mean, she got her the Nobel Prize. But another interesting aspect of it is that she and her companions are very much concerned about the plight of Africans in the colonies. But there's never a mention of the problems of Commonwealth immigrants in London and elsewhere in Britain. And yet, she had lived in Notting Hill, which became famous for its riots. And one of the... And you've got Colin McInnes in here, of course, as well. Yes, but a more important book than Colin McInnes, which I do write about, is a wonderful book called The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon. And Sam Selvon was one of the first wave of West Indians to arrive here, not on the Windrush, but he he was one of the first wave. And he writes this wonderful novel set amongst the West Indian community in London. And, of course, it shows the degree of prejudice they were up against and the nature of the lives they led and the extent to which they were exploited in terms of jobs, but also in terms of sexuality. And that, of course, brings one to Colin McInnes. But the ladies in in the Golden Notebooks are are much more concerned about what's happening in Rhodesia or Nyasaland than they are about what was happening in London. Shades of, is it Mrs Jellyby in Dickens, who's the great philanthropist? Touch of Mrs Jellyby. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs Jellyby was not, I mean, her problem, well, I mean, the accusation against Mrs Jellyby was that she was concerned with the poor abroad rather than the poor at home, whereas the women in the Golden Notebooks are concerned with the plight of people in Africa and not the plight of people in in London. Now, you start with Samuel Butler, The Way of All Flesh, which to me, I mean, I sort of think of Butler more with reference to Erwan now, but this was a hugely influential book in its time, wasn't it? And that seems to be somewhat occluded in our age. And the other the other one you start with is, is Lytton Strachey, looking at a sort of farewell to the Victorian yes. age. I mean, I start with a chapter called Debunking Victorianism. And the two books, as you say, are, are Samuel Butler and, and Lytton Strachey. Well, Lytton Strachey has lived on and still widely read. But at the time, The Way of All Flesh was very important because it spoke to the way people were thinking as it Victorian era came to an end. and I mean, all kinds of people, from George Bernard Shaw to Somerset Maugham, regarded it as a hugely influential novel. So too did Virginia Woolf, uh, who put it on a par with the Russians, the great Russian novelists, George Orwell. Who were only at that same time yes. coming into the language through Constance Garnett, weren't yes, they? So exactly. kind of yes, exactly. Yes, Revolutionary wave. And George Orwell also. And... and So Butler not only captured a mood of the moment, 
the turning against Victorianism, but he also had a considerable influence on a number of writers, and Shaw in particular emphasized the fact that whereas people thought he owed a lot to Ibsen, uh, he didn't think Ibsen had been so influential on him. He thought that Butler had been more, and Somerset Maugham regarded him, E.M. Forster regarded him, and so I think he's a very important figure, although no longer very widely read. <laughs> so he's sort of in our bloodstream, but we don't know it. Yes. It, it strikes me when you talk about these things that when they're published, you know, it's not only the subject matter, but it's the, it's the moment that these books are published in that really matters as well, isn't it? I mean, the, I think you say somewhere, yes. you know, Lytton Strachey, if he'd published this 20 years previously, you know, it would have had a totally different reception. Yes, well, certainly that's true of Lytton Strachey. It's certainly true of Samuel Butler. And I think, you know, timing is often all... I mean, another book which has had a great deal of influence, again, not very widely read now, but one of the great socialist classics is The Ragged Trousered Philosophers. Philanthropists. Sorry? Philanthropists. Philanthropists. I'm so sorry. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. And the timing of that was important. And I think that when one looks back, if you look at the post-First World War novels, The Green Hat, for instance, and... Noel Coward's plays, they they captured the feel of a moment. Now, of course, there's all the difference between novels, plays, which capture the feel of the moment and which live on, as Lytton Strachey has done and Noel Coward has done, but, for instance, The Green Hat hasn't done. But at the time, when um, when The Green Hat was put on, in New York at the same time as as a play of of Noel Coward's. It was the the green hat that actually got all the coverage rather than the vortex. Another interesting little point is, of course, that Michael Arlen, having achieved success before Noel Coward, actually financed the vortex. And in some ways, Noel Coward owed his breakthrough to Michael Arlen. Yes, I think one of the pleasures of this is actually seeing even now lesser known works by writers who are, are still familiar or you know having been important in their time i mean for example you use rattigan's play the flare path yes which now i think probably if most people are asked to name one played by terence rattigan they'd say the browning version yes but that was the big one wasn't it but i think flare path was revived not very long ago five years ago i can't remember yeah, you mentioned but that. not very long ago and i we went to see it and I was struck by the degree to which the problem at the heart of Flare Path was still able to capture the emotions of the crowd. I have an Italian daughter-in-law, uh, so she comes from a completely different cultural background. And yet I noticed that she too was, was gripped by the central issue. And, and the central issue is that the essential bravery of people during the war was overcoming fear. I mean, that there's the bravery of the person who gets a VC in some splendid action. But what the bomber pilot in Flare Path had to do was to go out night after night over Germany. Bomber command had the highest casualty rate of any arm of the British Armed Services. He was going out night after night and he was scared stiff. And every night he had to overcome his fear. And this comes to the fore over 
needless to say, a romantic problem. His wife had married him on the rebound after having had an affair with a glamorous Hollywood film star. The Hollywood film star turns up at the RAF base in Lincolnshire to try and persuade her to go back to him. She's very tempted to go back to him. But a variety of events which form the essence of the play show that when she actually is confronted with the fact that what her husband is doing is overcoming fear, that at that point you know, she sticks with, with her husband. And it's a very dramatic theme. Yeah. When you were going back, you know, looking at these different themes, these periods, was there... Well, in the first place, did, did you have a sort of sense of I need to find something a bit different here. For instance, the First World War, you know, you swoop neatly past, you sort of sidestep a lot of the stuff that's considered now absolutely boilerplate for the First World War, the war poets, the, you know, memoirs of Fox Hunting Man, the, you know, that sort of material, and you go to diaries. I mean, did you, did you have a sort of sense of being shadowed by the conventional works on these things? Or? Well, that's, I suppose now that you put it that way, there's a good deal of truth in that. What I've tried to write about is the British experience, by which I mean the experience of people, not the state. And by taking diaries, I was able to write about the war in a very intimate and personal fashion. I mean, there's not a great deal about either the First World War or the Second World War that I could have said that would be new. I mean, they've been covered... (laughs) Ad nause. But what I could try to do is to convey how it affected families and individuals. And I do that in both wars. I mean, in in the Second War, I also take a diary of a woman who lived in the Notting Hill area of London and the letters that Lady Diana Cooper wrote to her son, John Julius Norwich. There's some lovely kinds of sort of living in the basement of the Dorchester with the foreign secretary. Well, I mean, the the basement of the Dorchester turned into a sort of uh, dormitory and Duff Cooper and his wife, the Minister of Information, and and his wife are there and the foreign secretary and his wife are there. And she writes about how it reminded her of the dormitory at school. But it does cast a a strange light on the war, just as the fact that she writes in one letter about how she spent the morning serving tea on an RAF base that had just been bombed, and then when her shift on the RAF base is finished, uh, she goes to Chequers to have lunch with Clementine Churchill. Well, I mean, that's a sort of combination of events which would not have taken place in peacetime. In the First World War, I found, I think, two very interesting diaries. One is called the Bickersteth Diaries. And um, there was a canon Bickersteth who had four sons, nearly all at at the front, and and they wrote home. And the mother would transcribe and send them round to the other members of the family. So you get a, a family's view of of the war and how it developed and i and some of the insights are, are very revealing i mean there's one which is takes one's breath away where bergen bickerstaff one of the sons he's in a cavalry regiment and in 1917 three years after the war had begun lucky to have survived 
he actually writes that it was about an incident when he sat down for lunch with some of the soldiers and it was the first time he'd actually sat down to a meal with soldiers since he'd been in France. Now, that's quite a revelation. Another, I mean, another extraordinary set of revelations about the differences between officers and men is the diary of Private Lord Crawford. And Lord Crawford, the Earl of Crawford and Barcares, a former Conservative Chief Whip in the House of Commons, chairman of an iron steel company, author of a book about Donatello, he decided he had to do his bit and he joined up as a private in the Royal Army Medical Corps. I mean, a quite staggering crossing of class lines at the, at yes. the time. And it, there he, you know, he worked cleaning out the operating theatres and doing the humblest jobs and keeping a diary. And his view, worm's eye view, is very different from much of what is written. He points out, for instance, that the officers got much more regular leave than the men. As he was one of the men, he didn't get very regular leave either. He points out that the officers were able to bring out all kinds of surplus kit to make life in the trenches rather less unbearable. But, you know, one lot of rules applied to the officers, another lot of rules applied to the men. He sees through the wartime propaganda very well. And then there's the political crisis at home, the formation of the Lloyd George government, and he is brought back into politics. He becomes Minister of Agriculture. It wasn't... wasn't so he puts down his scrubs and yeah. becomes Minister of He'd become a corporal by then, and he comes back and he becomes... It wasn't called Minister of Agriculture. It had some other title. But he was the only cabinet... Only minister to have been in the trenches as a soldier, as distinct from as an officer during the First World War. And, and that's a, a very unusual light on the time. It's also, I like that you're able to weave some of your own experiences in as we go forward. You know, you describe these kind of extraordinary class differences between officers and men. You talk in having done national service. I mean, you say you were on reserve to go and fight in Suez, but didn't have to. But that, <laughs> fortunately for us and for the publication of this book probably but that you know when demobbed I found fascinating that you'd still an officer would refer even as civilians yes I mean, would, would call, call as a man by their nickname and the man would be you know, you'd be mister yes yeah. I the book I take is called the dead the dying and the damned yeah. now that's not a particularly memorable novel but it was very few novels were written about national service at the time. I mean, ma masses have been written since, but very few. The only two I can think of, one is, is The Dead, The Dying and The Damned, and the other, which is rather better known, but I think more esoteric, is The Breaking of Bumbo by Andrew Sinclair. But I take The Dead, The Dying and The Damned, and the chap in that went and fought in Korea, which fortunately I didn't do, I was only in the British Army of the Rhine in Germany. But he he gets the feel of the army at that time very well. And it is, again, looking back, I mean, extraordinary to think of of how it reflected in many ways class distinctions. I mean, we all joined up the same, in the same way. We were all in the same hut together. We all suffered under the sergeant majors together. But then there came a parting of, of the ways, and 
if you were a public school boy, you could become an officer. Many public school boys didn't become officers. But if you weren't a public school boy, your chances of becoming an officer were, I think, probably zero. Um, yes, I think what you say is the only insult that, that an officer would, wouldn't fling at a man, or the Red and Red well, or, or a sergeant, yes. RSM wouldn't fling at a man, was that he was a bastard on the grounds it might be true. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, you, we were subjected to what would now be called what would now be called verbal abuse. I don't know whether I should mention... Anyway, I will, because you can cover We're a that. podcast for adults. Yes, we, we can, you know, they, you, you weren't marching as well as you should, and the sergeant major would yell, Tugendhat, he'd yell, if you don't buck up, I'll put my fucking pastic up your ass and turn you into a walking lollipop. <laughs> and, uh, and then they'd come and bawl at you and say, do you know what happened when you were born? You'd say, no, sir. And he'd say, what they did when you were born was they threw away the baby and they kept the afterbirth. And you're the fucking afterbirth. Now, repeat after me. When I was born, they threw away the baby. Now, that, of course, would be very much frowned upon today. But frowned it, it does capture the feel of what it was like to be a recruit. And, and I have to say, we did all survive. Yes, well, that's good. And you're not, you're not suing the army for damages and... <laughs> mental distress just kind of take briefly pull out and take an overflight I'm interested, do you feel or did you notice when you were compiling this that there was a sort of either a measurable difference in the way that fiction and non-fiction worked in terms of capturing the times whether you know one of them was more likely to be prophetic or more likely to capture the vibe of then and also whether there were different periods in which, as it were, publishing was kind of getting it right and it felt absolutely, you know, there was a period of great prescience. I mean, you know, before the, before the war, you know, there were these bursts of H.G. Wells foreseeing everything. And were there periods in which you felt the sort of literature and publishing sort of wandered off and didn't have so much to say in terms of speaking to the Times? Yes, again, you're raising something which I must say I, I hadn't thought of. I think before the First World War, publishing did reflect perhaps the varieties of mood in the nation more widely than at other times. I mean, we think of the period before the First World War as a period of great security. But when you look back, you know, there was the vogue for invasion novels. The novel I particularly take is The Riddle of the Sands, not only because it's a most magnificent novel, but it, it was extremely influential. The, the plot about, is about a German invasion or plans for a German invasion of the East Coast. And, and it was so vivid that it did influence policy. And when the war began, some 10 years later, one of the first things Churchill did was to get the director of naval intelligence to make sure that Childers joined the Royal Navy. <laughs> That's um, an extraordinary detail. Um, which he did and formed very bravely, though then, of course, he... I mean, calling up novelists, you know, so yes. <laughs> you can't imagine yeah. it happening now in quite the same way. But he was quite exceptional. And one of the things, too, which comes through in the novels of that period, particularly comes through in John Buchan's 39 Steps, is the attitude... Uh, people had towards, one of the attitudes they had towards the empire, the, this sense that 
Britons in Britain were becoming effete uh, and the race was going downhill and that uh, you know there was a new breed of Britain being growing up in Australia and in Canada and South it's Africa. Funny, there's a Les Murray line I think where he says there's, Sorry? there's a Les Murray line I think where he says you know the, the rotten tree lives only in its rind you know that yeah. sense of the... and Richard Hannay epitomizes that and in Scouting for Boys the first edition of Scouting for Boys Baden-Powell uh, lays great emphasis on the fact that, you know, the, the sort of boys you should try to emulate are the ones in the colonies who learn to track and to shoot and all the rest of it. He also reflects the, the extent to which people were afraid of invasion. I mean, it's extraordinary to, to think, but in the first edition of Scouting for Boys, he's saying that if you learn to signal properly, it'll be a great help if there's an invasion and you'll be able to support the, the army. Uh, he says you should learn to shoot so that you can defend your women and children in the event of an invasion. Now, when you look at Downton Abbey or Upstairs, Downstairs or any of the rest of it, the idea that these people were thinking that there might be an invasion is very difficult to, to credit. Yes, it seems very, very stable, a sort of... I mean, P.G. Woodhouse-style, Ed- long Edwardian afternoon feeling yes, about it, isn't it? Yes. Again, tying them to your own experience, do you have a particular memory of when you read these books? I mean, as you were, you know, living through certainly this utter part of this this period, I mean, were you reading some of these books quite close to when they were written, when they came out? Were you, I mean, did you sort of read Wells as a boy and look back at I mean, well, some of them. I mean, well, the two books of Wells I take are both written before the First World War. Of course. Yeah, I wasn't expecting you to read them when they came <laughs> out. <laughs> I wasn't around then. But, for instance, one of the books I have is Lady Chatterley's Lover. Well, I think everybody of my generation can probably remember when they read Lady Chatterley's Lover after the trial. And, of course, we all read it for the sex. But what I realised in rereading it is that it's a much more profound book than simply a a book about sex. It's very revealing of all kinds of attitudes and the relationship between uh, Lady Chatterley's husband, Sir Clifford, and his carer is, is a fascinating one, that there he is in his wheelchair and she's the widow of a minor and she's radical and she doesn't like the upper classes. But her life's mission becomes restoring the confidence of Sir Clifford so that he can play his traditional role as a mine owner and as a a landowner. And then you realise when you read it that although the sex was very important between Connie and Mellors, that Mellors was actually no ordinary gamekeeper. He'd been an officer in in the war, so he had risen from the ranks and, and that she would never have married him if it had only been sex, it was the fact that they could talk was also very important. And and the fact that he'd been an officer meant that although her father obviously massively disapproved of her going off, leaving a baronet and going off with a gamekeeper, when the father has Mellors to dinner at his club and finds that he's actually somebody you can talk to quite naturally in the atmosphere of his club, that diminishes the antipathy very greatly. So I can remember when I I read Lady Chatterley very clearly. I remember when I read C.P. Snow's The Masters very clearly because 
although the Masters is not about undergraduates. I read it just after I'd left school and was going to go into the army for national service, and it made me fearful that there, for some reason there'd be a war or something which would mean I wouldn't get to Cambridge for another five or six years, if ever. So I remember reading the Masters like, like that, and there were, were several others which, when I read them, reading Brideshead Revisited again, I, I read that when I was in the army, the way in which it evoked both the atmosphere of the army but also what it was like looking back to the past and looking beyond the army into a, a comfortable life. It was a very vivid book to read while, while one was in the army. I remember very well, of course, reading 1984 and finding it as frightening as people did at that time. I was going to say, did, I mean, Orwell, as someone who, as you note in the book, has this stellar posthumous reputation, which, you know, slightly occludes the fact that for most of his lifetime, he didn't enjoy the sort of aura of sanctity and prophethood that he now does. Absolutely not. I mean, he had great difficulty in getting published. Partly did, did you, as it were, come to him before he was famous? I'm sorry? Did you sort of come to him before he was famous a little bit? I mean, had you... No, had you clocked I, him before his... No, I mean, because I read him in the 1950s. Well, he wasn't as famous in the 1950s as he is now, yeah. uh, but he was a lot more famous in the 1950s than he had been in the 1940s. But, I mean, one reason why Orwell, of course, found it so difficult to get published was that on the one hand he was a man of the left, and very much a man of the left. But on the other hand, he saw very early through Soviet communism and through Stalin. And at a time when he went to Spain, he had no idea that the whole Spanish government had been taken over by, by the Russians and so forth. And so when he came back and he was writing anti-Soviet from a left-wing point of view, Victor Golands the other establishment left-wing figures wouldn't publish him. They wouldn't publish Animal Farm because it was critical of the Soviets. That was, of course, during the war. And so he had to go to Secker and Warburg. Well, Secker and Warburg then got 1984, <laughs> uh, which was a tremendous bonanza. But at a time when even such robust figures as De Dennis Healy were taken in by Soviet communism... Orwell saw through it while remaining a man of the left. Yes, I remember actually as a footnote to the Orwell um, difficulty in publishing issue, I talking to the late Lord Weidenfeld about, because he'd known Orwell when they were both working at the BBC together, and he said, oh, yes, George Orwell, you know, he, he tried to get me to publish an essay of his, and I didn't think it was any good, so we didn't, we didn't run it. And I said, can you remember what it was called? And he said, uh, Politics in the English Language. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Missed opportunity for George there. I wondered a little bit, I mean, maybe it's the, the period you've chosen a bit sooner, but except for Wells and arguably Orwell, there's not much science fiction in here. No. Did you feel sometimes, I mean, I, I thought, you know, does Ballard not sneak in under the wire as a well? Inevitably, the book reflects the things I'm interested in. And although I made an effort to be eclectic and, and Catholic as possible, there isn't, for instance, anything about music because I'm not very much into 
to music. And you're perfectly right, there isn't very much about science fiction. But I think I would argue that Wells was much more than science fiction. In one of his books, The War in the Air, published before the First World War, at a time when Britain and Germany, and the United States for that matter, were investing huge sums in dreadnoughts and, and weaponry of that kind, he realised that air power would trump the lot and the effect of aerial bombing would bring a whole new dimension to war. In another of his, uh, his books, The World Set Free, he forecasts a nuclear war in around 1950. If that was interesting, that was much less well-known than The War in the Air. Everyone talks yes. about The War in the Air having been the great prophetic book, but one hears less, or I, I certainly grew up hearing less about The World Set Free. It was rather kind of jaw-dropping to read his descriptions in your book. Well, in some ways, The World Set Free is not dissimilar from The War in the Air in that they are both about terrible wars. There are two differences. One is The World Set Free for forecasts a nuclear war which you know to forecast a nuclear war in around 1950 it's not bad and the other is that whereas the war in the air leaves the world sort of a ruin in the world set free everybody gathers together in Lake Como and they form a sort of league of nations and you know an era of peace and stability is introduced, which again is not bad because you know that is kind of what happened after the First World War. It didn't work, but I mean with the attempt. They didn't gather at Lake Como; they gathered at Lake Geneva. But I mean that's not so far away. Although I have to say, moving rather sharply to another author, the most remarkable piece of foresight that I record in my book, I think, is Evelyn War, and. Evelyn Moore had a travel book called Remote People, written in 1931. And he goes to Kenya, as it was then called, and he thinks it's marvellous, and he thinks the settlers are tremendous, and he thinks this is the squirearchy being rebuilt in Africa, and he's all in favour of the colour bar. And yet, he says that European colonisation won't last for more than 25 years. And... To say in 1931 that European colonisation won't last for more than 25 years, and to say it when you had the general political position of Evelyn War, is the most incredible piece of foresight. It is extraordinary. And sort of slightly touches on that, you know, the trick beginning to the loved one, when you think uh, if you're in this sort of benighted territory where the... Yes. The protagonists are looking down from their veranda and sipping gin and tonics. Yes. And well, in fact, he's, <laughs> doing, he, he's doing that. If you were to, and I hope you will, update this to go from 1964 onwards and look at that subsequent, I don't know, maybe 50-year span, do you think the task would be similar? Do you have a, I mean, do, do you still have those books? Do you have a collection that goes that far forward and... Well, what do you I think of books that now? I do read yeah. books of now. But I don't think you can write a book of the sort I've written unless you have a certain amount of perspective. And, you know, we, we know now who the 19th century authors were who've survived, the Brontes, Jane Austen, Trollope, etc. We, we know who's survived. 
I think it's impossible to know who of those who are writing now or in the last 20 years will survive. Um, and so I don't think somebody could write a book of the sort I've written about today, at least for another 30 years or, or so. I mean, I think that... As a matter of personal opinion, are there authors writing now who you feel really, I mean, non-fiction or fiction, who have their thumb on the pulse of the of the times? I mean, is there something that... Well, in different in different ways. I mean, somebody who was at Cambridge with me is Margaret Drabble. And I think if one takes Margaret Drabble's, the entirety of her work, um, that does provide an extraordinary commentary on and picture of a segment of society and women's position in that segment of, of society. I think if you look at John Lanchester's book, Capital, written in 2012, that captures the sort of post-crash London wonderfully well. There's a book by Jonathan Coe called Middle Britain. Yeah, this is a Brexit novel. I think that is very good on the sort of underlying tensions and, and disagreements and all the rest of it behind the whole Brexit saga. I think that in a quite different sort of way, some of John le Carre captures the age he's lived in, the way in which he deals with questions of loyalty and divided loyalties. I'm thinking more of the post-Smiley novels, the, the Constant Gardener, the Night Manager, where he's dealing with capitalism, the extent to which capitalism can be corrupted, so all those. He captures contemporary issues. Another woman who I think, again, completely different, but, but Zadie Smith, too, I think, White Teeth, but also Swing Time, it might feature in a book like this, written in the future. But I think you have to have perspective. You, you have to be looking back with some distance of time before you can form a, a judgment. I'll see you back here in 30 years then. Christopher Tugendhat, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.